Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. I, I appreciate this opportunity. I consider it a real honor. And uh, I'm so excited about the Lord's good work here at Southeastern Seminary. It's a great time for this institution. I, I appreciate your leadership. And as a trustee of the International Mission Board, I want to thank you for all you're doing to, to mobilize a generation uh, for the nations. And uh, we, we're grateful to God for that work. I had a good breakfast this morning with my good friends, Edgar Aponte and Chip Hardy. Both those guys are, are an encouragement to me, and I am glad to have the time of fellowship with them. I found myself in what is an unusual position for me at the beginning of this year, 2016. I realized that over the course of this year, I was going to preach in chapel at Southern Seminary and Southwestern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary. And uh, I began to pray about that, about what to deliver. And my first instinct was to, to write one really good sermon and, and, and hit all three of those seminary chapels with it. You know, some of my great, some of my best illustrations, some of my, some of my best stuff. But the Lord laid something different on my heart. Instead, he said, why don't you preach to those seminary chapels what you preach to your church? Feed them like you feed the flock of God. So instead, what I did at the beginning of the year was made a commitment that in each of these occasions, I wanted to preach to you something that I have just preached to my congregation. In part because when I was a student, sometimes I would sit in chapel and hear a guy come in who was a great conference speaker, deliver one of his best messages, and I would be impressed and a little dismayed because I would think, oh gosh, I can't do that every week. Listen, when you hear that, here's the truth. He doesn't do that every week. <laughs> and so what I want to give you this morning is an example of pastoral, expositional preaching. We, we, need, we need men and women of God to go to the nations, and we need some church planters. But the great need in the kingdom of God in so many ways right now is men who will shepherd the flock of God. Our churches are sick and weak, and oftentimes it's because of a lack of pastoral leadership. And uh, so I, I, I want to share with you uh, the first of five sermons that I preached on Hannah from the first two chapters of 1 Samuel and th that I just finished preaching to the people of Quell Springs Baptist Church, and I want to share this word with you with really very little change. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll read the first 10 or 11 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is an encouraging word. I want to encourage you this morning. I'm telling you, when I studied and put together this sermon, it encouraged me in so many ways. You, you know, it, I, I enrolled in seminary 30 years ago. It's hard for me to believe it even as I say that. 
And over the course of 30 years, I've had a few friends who are no longer in ministry uh, because they got fired. And I've got a few who are no longer in the work because they disqualified themselves morally. But I have many who are no longer in the work because they just got tired and discouraged and quit. Discouragement is the great threat. And this is a text that encourages me uh, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote that all of redemptive history narrowed and sharpened into a small, bright point, like the tip of a spear, a Jewish girl at her prayers. Of course, talking about Mary. And you could say something similar about Hannah. Over a thousand years before Mary, things had pretty much fallen apart for Israel. The country and the culture were a mess. In so many ways, the people of God had failed. And God went to work to bring about change, to change his people, to reverse their course. And sure enough, in just a generation or two, he moves them from a weak group of scattered tribes to a great nation that displays his glory. And that story is told in First and Second Samuel, story of the great reversal. Now these books, First and Second Samuel, are dominated by three strong men, Samuel and Saul and David. But the redemptive story begins with a woman with Hannah. Oftentimes when God wants to do a great work, he begins with a good woman. We find that in scripture. I've got to tell you that there's an older lady in our church, about 80, beautiful African-American woman who is not, she's not Baptist. In fact, she's an ordained minister from another denomination, but she lives nearby and she doesn't drive. And she'll see attends our church. She sits right here in the front row. And she is a beautiful amener. You know, it takes a certain rhythm. You have timing and she can, she is such an encouragement to me as she, but when she, when she started coming to our church, she said, if I come to your church, she said, what are the chances of me getting up in that pulpit? And I said, oh, I like my pulpit. I, I'm not sure you'll get in it. So she's sitting here and I made that statement. When God wants to do a great work, he oftentimes starts with a good woman. And she said, hold on now. (laughs) She she liked the sound of that. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about Hannah. Hannah stubbornly and prayerfully sets herself against the way things are. The circumstances handed her. And before you know it, history is flowing in a different direction. And you're gonna see this just beginning in Hannah's life. You follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter one, verse one through verse 11. Now there was a certain man from Ramaphaim Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah. That, that probably could just as well be translated the name of the first was Hannah. And the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. 
Now, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So Hannah wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking at Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah, greatly distressed, bitter of soul, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Just the first part of verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. We'll stop there. I, I, I want you to see that one of the striking things about the verses we just read is the fact that they offer such a powerful description of Hannah's reality. If I set out to tell you a story and I began with the phrase, once upon a time, you know that I'm telling you a make-believe story. It's not a real story. It's not a real place. These are not real people. But one of the things that strikes us from the very beginning as we read verse 1 and 2 of this text is this pile of names and places. This story starts with the opposite of the phrase once upon a time because it's describing for us a real story, real places, a real time for Israel. In fact, when verse 3 mentions Shiloh and Eli and his sons, we know that we're talking about the late period of the Judges. If you've read the book of Judges, you know that this is a time when God's people are politically weak and economically disadvantaged, morally compromised, theologically corrupt. This is the day in which every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. In fact, McLaren says of Hannah's day that it was marked by a demoralized priesthood, an alienated people, and a silent God. This is a real place in a real time. Hannah lived, uh, in fact, not only in a real time, a real place, but with real people. And there are a lot of people mentioned, let me just, for example, mention Elkanah, her husband. Her husband loves her and in his own way he's generous and kind and he's clueless. I mean, when I, when I read the verse that says, Elkanah says, oh, Hannah, why are you sad? I'm better to you than 10. You know, the men in here are thinking, oh, Elkanah, he's a good fellow. And the women are thinking, what an idiot. <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he's clueless to her pain. Eli and his sons, if we had time to read some of the next few chapters, 
Eli's out of touch and passive and his sons are totally disqualified. And this is the priesthood. Penina provoking and irritating and teasing with all of her children sitting around the table rubbing salt in the wound. Sometimes the people in our lives are the real source of heartache. So Hannah lives in a real time, a real place with real people, and she has a real problem. Verse 2 tells us that Hannah has no children. Now, you know that this is a biblical motif that runs from Sarah all the way to Elizabeth in the New Testament. And even in our culture, where women are no longer defined and valued solely by their ability to bear children, there's a powerful pain connected with this phrase that really speaks to our hearts in a unique way. We imagine, we can imagine immediately her longings and frustrations and tears and prayers. Real problem. And most of all, this text is marked by this description of Hannah's real emotion. There are all these emotional indicators. Now, you know that in Old Testament narrative, emotion is typically described or communicated through actions. And we can see this in Hannah. She's weeping. She's lost her appetite. She's isolating herself. Her actions tell us that she's under this heavy emotional weight. But what's unusual about this text, and we should notice, is there also, we find in this text, this direct description of her emotion. It's unusual, and so it's always significant. When the Old Testament gives direct description of emotion, and we see in verse 8, Elkanah described her emotions directly. Her heart is sad. And we find in verse 10, Hannah describe her own emotion when she says, I am greatly distressed, bitter of soul. These emotions are like a whirlwind. They're overwhelming her. You, you, many of you know the rest of the, the, the next part of the story that Hannah, when she goes to the temple to pray, in fact, she is so overwhelmed with emotion. She is in such distress with the heaviness, remember, that Eli thinks she's drunk. She's so out of sorts. And in a beautiful response, Hannah says, no, I'm not drunk. I am a woman bitter of soul, oppressed of spirit, and I am pouring out my heart before the Lord. So a real woman in a real time, real place, real people, real problem, and this heavy, this real emotion. And so let's stop here to say, one of the gifts that Hannah gives to us is to teach us as the people of God, you can be honest about your reality. We don't have to play this game. There's something I've learned in 28 years of being a pastor is that most good people, Christian people, church people, when they feel bad, sad, disappointed, confused. Those feelings are complicated because on top of that, we also feel guilty. 
oh, I shouldn't feel this way. And so that guilt just confuses the emotions that are already there. When I was in seminary, I was preaching through the book of Philippians in the first little church that I pastored. And I, and I preached that, uh, what I thought was a great sermon about rejoicing in the Lord always. The commandment to rejoice. And God's people are marked by joy and we should rejoice. And after church, one of the best ladies we had came to me with tears in her eyes and said, I know that if I was a good Christian, I wouldn't be so sad. And I knew right then that I'd, I'd done something wrong. Because sometimes even good Christians are sad. Sometimes the circumstances of our life overwhelm us and emotions are swirling in us as was true for Hannah. You know, I hope, that don't worry, be happy is not in the Bible. You know that somewhere around a third of all of the Psalms in the Hebrew hymn book are songs of complaint, songs of grief and mourning, sadness, songs likely sung to a minor key. And you as an individual follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the people of God, and you as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, got to understand that we've got to give ourselves and our people freedom to express their burdens or else they're going to have a plastic faith and they're going to be quick to break. We don't have to deny or minimize how we're feeling in order to be right with God. Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah never denied the realities of her life. And Hannah never denied the reality of her Lord. She held on to both. So that look at something beautiful in verse 11. She made a vow, greatly distressed, weeping bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. Here's Hannah's great contribution to our theology, Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is used over 250 times in the Old Testament to describe God. Isaiah loves to call God the Lord of hosts, as does Jeremiah, Zechariah. But the first time the God of Israel is called the Lord of hosts is right here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And the first person to address him as the Lord of hosts is Mother Hannah. She calls on him as the Lord of hosts, even when she's under this burden. You understand the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the multitudes, the God of a vast, numberless, heavenly army. It's connected here to Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant is. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. The Lord of hosts speaks to the majestic splendor of God who rules as king. He's the Lord of hosts. He's unrivaled. He's, he has this inexhaustible resource of power. He wins the battle. He's sufficient to lead Israel over any crisis or enemy. 
The Lord of hosts is the Lord as king and commander of an overwhelming army. He's the Lord of hosts. And Hannah prays to him as the Lord of hosts. The, 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 the great biblical context to help us understand God as the Lord of hosts is the most famous story in 1 Samuel. When David the shepherd boy walks out onto the battlefield to fight Goliath, and Goliath has all of his weaponry and armor and David has a stick and a sling and five stones. You know the story, right? And David says, Goliath, I'm gonna kill you and cut your head off. And when I do, then all the nations will know there is a God in Israel and this trembling army behind me will know that God does not deliver with sword or spear, but he gives the victory. And then remember, David says to Goliath, Goliath, you come to me with sword and spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And I like to think that David learned to know God as the Lord of hosts from Samuel. And Samuel learned to know him as the Lord of hosts where we all learn stuff from his mama. She taught him that he is the Lord of hosts. And so don't miss this. The Lord of hosts was as real to Hannah as her place and her people and her problems and her emotions. In fact, it's the greater reality. And so imagine Hannah. Now, this is outrageous, it's, it's, it's outrageous really. Imagine Hannah at Shiloh. She's overcome with dark emotions. She's a barren woman from a dysfunctional family praying in a broken down place of worship with a corrupt priesthood of a defeated people. Yet with a stubborn faith, she calls upon God as the Lord of hosts. She's honest about her reality. And for her, the Lord of hosts is real. See, what happens far too often is if we if we play games with our emotions and our reality, then we're playing games with our faith too. It's all just a farce. But Hannah, for Hannah, they're both real. It's not just Hannah. We could look at a lot of examples in the New Testament. Take one, Stephen. Stephen is being stoned because of his witness for Christ. And as he's being stoned, he gazes intently into the heavens and sees the risen Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Were those stones real for Stephen? Undeniably. And Jesus was real. And this is what it means to walk by faith, brothers and sisters. We don't have to deny or avoid or minimize the hard realities of life. You don't have to deny or minimize the harsh realities of gospel ministry. Sometimes there is disappointment and weariness and discouragement. It's real. 
and we pour out our complaint before the Lord. But we fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider him who has endured such hostilities by angry sinners against himself so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. We're honest about our reality and the Lord is real. When I was about your age, a seminary student, well, I was a seminary student. I was a pastor of a small church of about 30 people in the country. And I didn't have really enough sense to fully appreciate what I was experiencing. But we, we, uh, it was a great church, a wonderful congregation that in so many ways taught Julie and I how to serve the Lord in the local church. And we had, our piano player could only play three songs. <laughs> I've got a witness to this. And really, two of those she couldn't play very well. So... We sang the same three songs every Sunday. But one Sunday evening a month, a lady came out from the local town who, it was amazing, she could play anything in the hymn book. So what do you think we did? You shout out a number, she'll play it and we'll sing it. You know, request your favorite hymn. Well, in our church there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, was an older lady named Lorraine. And I was in, I'd been in Lorraine's home and Lorraine lived in a broken down little 1,000 square foot house. She was a godly woman, a wonderful Christian woman. Her husband had died, she was living on social security, her kids had moved away, she was alone, she was poor. And, and, and she was an encouragement to us, she was a fine lady. But looking back on it, I recall that every Sunday night when it was time to request hymns, she always got around to requesting the very same song. In fact, I wouldn't know this song if it wasn't for Lorraine, but she would ask that we sing it. And I think it's, it's a kind of a window to what was going on in her life at that time. We would sing, are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joys departed? Tell it to Jesus. Do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Lorraine taught me that weariness and grief and heaviness are real, as is Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are the King of glory. You died on the cross, bearing the burden of our sin. You rose again in victory. And even now you're at the right hand in all your glory with all authority. 
we praise you for who you are. We confess that your authority, your reign, it's real. In fact, it's the governing reality of our lives. And we also confess, Father, that we are weak and that life is heavy at times. Sometimes we feel discouraged. We own, we acknowledge those realities, Lord, and we bring them to you, just like Mother Hannah. All the bitterness in our souls, the heaviness of life, we pour it out before you. And I pray, Father, that you'd give us faith like Hannah to embrace the heaviness of our reality in the light of the heaviness of your glory, the reality of who you are. Hallelujah, we praise your name. We thank you for our calling, for gifts, for the opportunity to receive education. We thank you for your word, the way you speak to us. We praise you, O Lord of hosts. I pray, Father, that not a person here would be weary in well-doing, that everyone would finish the course to the praise and the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.